Verse 9, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we once more, at the conclusion of this book you've spoken to us through, we ask you to do it again, to speak to us, teach us your truth, help us to understand what we're reading, and then how to obey what we've read. We thank you for our time together. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if the book of Ecclesiastes had ended there at the end of the preacher's first-person monologue, if you want to put it that way, the body of the book, and we'll refer to this again, that it started with another voice and it ends here with another voice, but the body was from the preacher. If that was all we had with no head or tail, just the middle, we would have ended on verse 8 where he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, you can take my word for it if you can turn back. But if we go to the second verse of the first chapter, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, and as the poem begins, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So he starts the way he ends. That's not what we've got here. We've got... A little epilogue uh, from the editor, the same one that had introduced us to this preacher to start with. Um, It's not as if he's necessarily repeating himself, though. I think that'd be the wrong way to look at it. Because I don't think we're the same people that we were when we started studying months ago. If we've paid attention and we've heard the voice of the Lord, we know not only what that word vanity means... But I think that word vanity and its meaning have shaped the way we look at life. We're not the same people now that we were when we started studying. So when we hear those words, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, they strike us differently now. There's a weight to it. We know what that means. We've been studying for months about wealth, about work, uh, about the brevity of life, the pain of life, and how that he describes it as a vapor, the merest of breaths. Yes, there is meaningless to all these things if you don't see them in context. But if you look at it for what it is, as a gift from God and not gain to hold with both hands tightly, only to have to have the Lord pry your fingers loose because you have to leave it here when it's over, If we look at it that way, we look, we spend, we invest that breath now with wisdom that we've learned through the book. Uh, 
So it's been quite a journey. But like the introduction, the final passage is written not in the first person, but referring to the preacher in the third person. This is the work or the voice of an editor. He offers a compact conclusion, just six verses, to the writings of the preacher. It's focused on our obligation to fear God and keep his commandments. That's what he said at the end. This is it. You've heard it all. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That right there is quite the counter argument, wouldn't you say, to the way the world operates. Fear God. Obey his commandments. That's your point in living. I think if you ask most folks what's the meaning of life, that's probably the last thing that they're going to say is the point of it all. Um, How many people do you think walk around in the fear of God and seeking to obey his commandments? You might hear them say, well, I'd try to live a good life, try to make sure my kids are decent, respectful, so forth. That's part of the fear of God and obeying his commandments, but that's not the same thing. So this provides a rather straightforward target as far as this sermon and its point are concerned. This sermon comes from the Scripture. The point of the Scripture is our attitude must be to fear God and demonstrate this attitude by keeping His commandments. That's your thesis. That's the point. That's what we're taking home today. Our attitude must be to fear God and demonstrate this by keeping His commandments. So before the editor that we just read, last six verses, summarizes the preacher's central message. And if we were making good notes, you'd go back and find that there were six times that the preacher talked about the fear of God. Now this is an extra time, and it's used as summary of the preacher's work, that that was his main point. Before he gets to saying these things, according to the custom of the time, he praises the man's work. That's what you see in verses 9 and 10. And it's not a whole lot different than the way we do with authors if you're in an airport. You know, the big bookshelves that are right there before you get to, you know, all the candy and stuff. Uh, You might see big gold stickers that say, New York Times bestseller list. You flip it over and you see all the different authors or specialists or TV personalities or whoever thought the book was great. Well, that's what he's doing here. Look at verse 9 again. Besides being wise, well, we get that. Preacher also taught people, weighing, studying, arranging, uh, many proverbs, great care. Preacher sought to find words of delight, uprightly wrote words of truth. So in his commendation of the preacher and his work that has just concluded, he's not telling us what he said. He'll get to that in a minute. That's fear God and obey his commandments. But he gives us his praise of how he went about saying what he said. First, if you look there in verse 9, the preacher also taught people. That's good, isn't it? Because if he didn't, we would not have been studying Ecclesiastes for the summer. Uh, Not every wise or smart or learned person takes on the extra work of teaching that wisdom and knowledge and expertise to other people. Only the Lord knows who we are because of the teachers in our lives, right? And the good teachers, you remember them. Sometimes you call a bad teacher a hard teacher, but you probably remember what they taught you. Because they leaned in and made sure you got it. 
So this is good. He taught the people knowledge, and he went about it by weighing and studying and arranging. So he's evaluating what he knows, and then he gathers what's most significant and arranges them accordingly with great care. So when you come across something like, who can make straight what God has made crooked? You just sit down and you think an hour about that. All the things that I think that I can unwind, fix, patch up, repair, it was God who made them crooked. It's called the curse of sin. No one's going to fix that except his son on the cross. Some things in this life cannot be fixed apart from total redemption. And then we won't feel that until glory. It's a wonderful way to have said that. It's not a shock or surprise that it's stuff like that that he gathered, compiled. What does it say? Weighing, studying, arranging. And then not only did he write with logical clarity, but he also wrote with literary artistry. That's where it says the preacher sought to find words of delight. Part of it's poetry. Now, folks, I don't want to presume to be someone I'm not. I hated English class, though I love many English teachers, right? (laughs) I didn't like literature until I was older. None of it made sense to me. It's an acquired taste. It's kind of like some of those things that you eat later on and wonder where they've always been. Some kids like pickles, not a lot. No kid likes a salad. Salads are great, but it takes time. Now, if you were raised on salads, maybe that's different to each their own. But what I'm trying to say here is this man wrote with a aesthetically pleasing I don't know what you'd call it but there's a reason why we've been able to quote so many popular songs that rip this man's work off right there's a reason why so many uh, even atheists use these words in weddings or funerals or they're all over the place etched in stone at our capital Um, We don't really need to labor this point, but just to think of his poetry, and especially the one we looked at last week, describing life as a breath, to take one word and encapsulate our lives and us say, that's exactly it. This is good stuff. It's not just logically clear and coherent. It's literary artistry with aesthetically pleasing words and tone. Even the poetry and how it's put together is, is quite an effort. That's for another study, for another time, and another instructor. We don't need to spend any time on that. But if you keep going, finally, he mentions this, um, which would be described as, as writing with an intellectual integrity. He didn't... He was able to turn a phrase, but he didn't mince any words. In other words, the man never held back from telling us the God's honest truth, no matter how bad it hurt or no matter who it made angry. He stepped on all our toes. Last week was particularly difficult. He's going to tell the truth. So going to that third, it's it's almost as if the, the last... Six verses are written in two verses each. There's three paragraphs, if it were, 
Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. So here he starts talking about those cultivated, articulated, curated uh, words of his. But he says, here's what they're good for. They're goads and they're nails. Uh, A goad... We see that in the New Testament with Paul. Why are you kicking against the goads? A goad was an ancient cattle prod. If you've ever played with a cattle prod, don't ever play with a cattle prod. I've seen one and I was told not to play with it. But it was like the front runner of the stun gun or the taser. And it's designed to deliver a shock to its, uh, I, I don't know, it's usually animals, cattle. Donkeys, not children. The other day we were in Walmart and I saw this kid. It attached to his wrist was this cord that was like coiled. Look, reminded me like a, a hose on an air compressor or maybe a surfboard leash. And on the other end was the parent. And this kid, just like any dog you see in, in our neighborhoods, takes it all, right? Usually it's on the, it wasn't on the child's neck, but it was his wrist. And he was pulling as far as he possibly could and pulling hard, trying to get away from it. That's similar to these goads. There's, there's a reason for this, it, and it's, it's in the form of control, right? And in the ancient world, there's no electricity but a sharp point. And a lot of times the cart itself had a bunch of them, and then there's a stick with one. And if the ox backs up, you make him go forward, right? Well, goads work because they cause pain. What do we think of pain associated with learning things? Again, modern ears, what does that sound like? Use pain for, for learning stuff? Or do you, is this torture? I don't know about, I don't know how you all were raised, and I feel like it was forever ago. But there was pain associated with disobedience. It came from Scripture. There's foolishness bound in the heart of a child. Um, And I'm thankful and will be eternally for the fact that my parents, under the sun, knew that if they left me to myself, I'd cause myself problems. That's, That's a human heart. They love me too much to let me go wrong. And these Proverbs are the same way. Most of the, the lessons that we learn of, that are of most value were learned with difficulty, weren't they? Maybe not self-inflicted, but life is hard. So we learn from it. Uh, what about the nails? Well, the word like is used there with both of them. Words of the wise are like goads. Words of the wise are like nails firmly fixed. Many of you know we're in the middle of building a home. We just finished the framing process. Part of the way I can help with this is uh, on my lunch break, go out there and ask the foreman, what do you need in order to keep them working? So I've been to Home Depot and back for everything from an 8-inch, half-inch threaded bolt with the washer and nut to go on them, dozens of them to put these big beams across the garage to hold them together. All the way down to these little goofy, uh, they call them button caps. Uh, 
You put the tar paper on the roof with it. They're designed to hold that down good, but they often work very good at falling on their head and holding that nail straight up for you to step on. Some of you are nodding your heads. You've stepped on one before. But the job is the same, no matter light or heavy. It's to hold things together and stay that way, right? So when we read about nails firmly fixed, once a wise saying is driven into the mind, it stays there. Once we hear them, it's hard to forget them. If they're good ones, Ecclesiastes is full of it. Proverbs is full of many more. But they're for this purpose. A pithy statement, hard to, re- to forget because it's so easy to remember. So where do these words likened to goads or nails come from? That's the last part of verse 11. They come from Solomon, these collected sayings. No, this time it says, by one shepherd. Now that's interesting. You look at it yourself, translations are different. But is that capitalized? The ESV is capitalized. That's significant to biblical literature because kings were known to be called shepherds because they were over a whole group of people. But also the prophets would use the word shepherd to refer to the Lord, and it was always capitalized. Now, we all know the wisdom that Solomon got. He got in, in reference to a, a blank check he was given. What do you want? I'll give you anything. He said, I want a wisdom. This is God's wisdom. So it comes from one shepherd. Huge amount of evidence for all that. This is the Lord, the original source. And then what about the warning? That's in verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. What's these? Well, the collection of wisdom given to us by God that serves as our Bibles. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. All verses have their meaning, right? Doesn't mean that people won't take those verses and use them for something else. I had that one written down when I was in school. Especially in seminary. There's a weariness of the flesh to all this stuff. I can't keep it all in my head. I can't read this big stack of books you professors think that I enjoy as much as you do. On and on and on and on. I get that. What he's trying to say here is not, hey, school is not cool. He's trying to say that there are limits to this type of thing. He means you can overdo it. Uh, There are the people that Paul warned Timothy about, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always asking questions in Bible study that seem to be fringe questions, as if their meaning in life was just gathering all the biblical factoids they could, but they demonstrate no wisdom as to how to arrange the factoids in any useful manner. You've known plenty of smart people, educated people, brilliant people, who couldn't change a light bulb. They, they can't take the factoids and, and put it into a workable useful wisdom or brilliant people who engineer things but their cars break down they don't change the oil there's many examples for this but he's saying you can overdo it in those days and today there were many writings that were passed off as wisdom but they weren't wisdom 
And because of human nature, the idea of there being things that one can know and others do not know is a very powerful draw, isn't it? Um, <laughs> there's a reason why certain books fly off the shelves. Uh, topics like prophecy. You know why there's so many books on prophecy? Because so much of prophecy is not crystal clear in Scripture. It's meant to be said so that when it happens, we can look back and say, oh, that's how it happened. But it's impossible for us to look at it now and say, oh, that's how it's going to happen. Because then we'd make God a liar who said when it happens, nobody's going to have seen it coming. Right? That's the only thing we know for certain about the day when the Lord returns. And that is nobody will know when it is. But the idea of thinking, well, I've got an inside look and I can see it coming before others. That kind of makes you a little more powerful than others that don't know so the idea of being able to have access to things other people don't could send you on an, an a journey for your lifetime and really have nothing to show for it when you're done with it all of what you need to know is in the scriptures and the main things are the plain things it's all there worry about the bible plus stuff because of the writing of many books there is no end if you just wanted to write about interesting stuff, forget the boring stuff, where would you stop? How far would you have to go to be thorough in all of it? There's a reason why John, the one who leaned on Christ, the one who loved Jesus and the one Jesus loved, said, and many other things were done in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus was the Son of God and in believing you might have life through his name. I'll give you enough to be saved by it, but I can't tell you everything that was ever done because if they were done, he says this later, even the world couldn't contain the books that should be written and that's just one guy's life. So you can't overdo this wisdom business, but enough of it has been preserved and we're thankful that it has been. Beware of anything beyond. The point here is that there is a sufficiency to the text of Scripture. The word sufficiency means enough. It is enough. Same as uh, ministry models, the way different churches go about doing what is laid out in the Great Commission. There's a certain minimum required in Scripture. That's what Scripture says we do together, and it's enough. But that doesn't mean that other churches won't go after other things to try to enough plus. That's the, an attractional model where we're going to have all these cool things going on to entertain you, and then maybe you'll stick around to do the basics that God told us to do. That's kind of a backward way to look at it. The same way in our own homes with our own lives. There's a certain minimum you need to know and live by and there's other things you can do too and enjoy them but if you switch it around and enjoy all that stuff you don't get to the minimum or the basic and then you're insufficient so is God's word sufficient to do the work of ministry yes if we try to up that well then it's ministry plus all right the editor's ready to conclude Verse 13, the end of the matter. It's kind of like his way of saying, in conclusion. You know, that's usually when you hear the little zzz, 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 right? He's done. I don't use phrases like that on purpose. 
Because usually when I do, it just gets me in trouble. Or saying that we'll be done early. That's always a guarantee it's going to go long. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We've done this twice so far. How does that sound to modern ears? What would modern ears think about a relationship that involves as a key component fear and then judgment? Who in their right mind would say that fear is a healthy component of a relationship these days? It is a healthy component. If there's a massive difference between one and the other, like creator and creation, and then if we're accountable to him because we're his creation, then judgment fits as well. And if we take away judgment, you you might see those signs or or something with a business, you know, no judgment area or whatever. I think that's a gem I saw on a billboard, something like that. They're not going to be judging you. Well, we hope that the Lord judges the world or nothing's fair. We'll get to that in a second. But to fear God is not to be terrified of Him, but to stand in awe of Him. Back to being children and and being disciplined, being led and and learn. Um, There's this dynamic between the teacher and the student which kind of helps us look at the dynamic between the creator and the creation. So God is eternal. We're finite. We're described here as only a breath. God is sovereign. means he rules. We're dependent on him. We can't control anything. God is holy. We are sinners. And on and on. So fear is actually the only appropriate posture toward the God of the universe from his created beings. Do you remember, um, you can draw on your maybe Sunday school classes as a kid uh, with a flannel graph or, or whatever. But when the people of God left Egypt and they are heading for the promised land via the wilderness, they get past the Red Sea and all the Egyptians running after them are drowned. They finally get to Mount Sinai where Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And while he's talking with Moses, there are thunderings and lightnings and fire on the mountain. And the people were warned not even to get to the, the base of the mountain or you'll die. There's this separation between God's holiness and your sinfulness. And there's this one guy that the Lord's going to use as an intermediary, kind of a picture of what he'll do with Jesus in the New Testament. But if you remember, there's a point to where the people come to Moses and say, from now on, you're going to have to talk to him. If we have to hear his voice, we will die. It was that terrifying to them. Another passage, it, it says specifically, they heard the voice of the Lord, not just the thunder and the lightning. And then Moses specifically said, you heard the voice of the Lord to keep you from sin. And remember that whole golden calf debacle. He's going to go up there and give us the law. Well, we're going to have a party down here and make our own God. I mean, as a kid, you look at that and think, how stupid could these people be? You grow up and you realize how stupid us people are. Our heart will wander after those things given the slightest invitation. So there is a reason why fear is necessary. 
And then there's this business of how we demonstrate that, that fear. Before we get to that, here's Deuteronomy just, just for efficiency and uh, making sure we're on the same page. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord of God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. How do we demonstrate that we fear the Lord? We obey his commandments. And there are two reasons why, if we were to look at that, that verse, there's two fours in there. Four, uh, and it has to do with the judgment. Um, but there are two reasons why we should fear the Lord and keep his commandment. Because he says it's the whole duty of man. That's the first four. The Hebrew, you won't notice this in your English translations, does not have the word duty. So it would read literally or woodenly, for this is the whole of man. I like the Hebrew version better because basically what he's saying is this is your purpose. It's the whole duty. That's why you were made. You were made to keep God's commandments, to fear him. That's why I put Adam and Eve in the garden, to demonstrate his goodness, to have someone else besides the uh, Son and the Holy Spirit to love and share a relationship with. That's why we're here. That's still why we're here. It's why we'll always be here. But it's our essence, our purpose. Second reason, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is Matthew 12, Jesus speaking. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Every deed and every secret thing, good or evil, is wrapped up in that judgment. And Jesus confirms it. But that's where Ecclesiastes, in its view, is limited. It doesn't have the rest of the Revelation. It doesn't have the New Testament. We don't need to dread his judgment. This is John 5. For the Father judges no one. It's not God who's going to be doing any of the judging, but has given all judgment to the Son. And why would he give it to his Son? Because his Son knows what it tastes like. His son bore all the wrath of the father on sin. No human being ever survived that process. You know how, it's a crazy illustration popped into my head. You know how in academy when police are trained or the stuff that they do of continuing education credits, I'm sure there's another term for it, but if you're going to be issued one of those Stun guns we talked about, which induces pain in order to control misbehavior of someone else. Do you know what they make you do with that before you get to use it on someone else? <laughs> Joey knows. <laughs> right? You have to be shot with it yourself. So if there's one who's going to say, you enter my kingdom... And you depart from me, you worker of iniquity. He knows what it tastes like. He's taken it on himself. It's not unfair. It's not that he can't sympathize. 
It's his son that judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He doesn't get tased at all, but has passed from death to life. Why? Because Jesus took it for him. So he doesn't have to have it himself. It's brilliant. It's perfect. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's not work when you belong to Jesus. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that is overcoming the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What is this business of overcoming the world? Surviving it. All the pain and agony and the death and the sorrow and the goodbyes and losing one's business or spouse or whatever. All the stuff that Solomon has been helping us with. The way you overcome that is by belonging to Jesus, which starts with the fear of God and then obeying his commandments aren't difficult. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So here's what I want you to try on. I thought this was incredible. Isn't it fitting that the book of Ecclesiastes ends with a warning of judgment? Because that's the last verse. Every deed, every secret thing, good or evil, will be brought to judgment. Now, there's different judgments. Those who go to heaven, one judgment. And it's based on rewards. Those who go to hell, based on their having rejected the offer of the gospel. But what the Bible tells us happens at the end of the world is judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment, right? We meet the great judge. So why does Ecclesiastes end here? Because there's so much misconception about the book and really it's, it's loaded to the front where we read, Vanity, vanity, and we want to jump to the word meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. Nothing means everything. You remember the first week we looked at it and we talked about the Queen song? Nothing really matters, right? Every deed, every secret thing, everything matters. Not nothing matters, or some of it matters and some of it doesn't. All of it matters. You will be judged on every deed and every secret thing, whether good or evil. So because on that day, everything matters, look at it on the other side of the coin, backwards, if it helps make sense. If there were no God and therefore no judgment, then it would be hard to say that anything matters because whatever happened on this earth is over when you're dead. And how fair is that? Probably the most insulting, the one people get most been out of shape. Somebody's spending your hard-earned money when you're dead who didn't deserve any of it because they don't even know what you did to get it in the first place. Right? That's not meaningful. That wouldn't matter. That'd be horrible. But if there's a God and there is a God and if there's a judgment and there is a judgment, then everything matters. Let me read to you from uh, Philip Reich and his commentary on Ecclesiastes is titled... Why everything matters. And this is in his closing remarks. But he says, It will matter how we used our time, whether we wasted it on foolish pleasures or worked hard for the Lord. It will matter what we did with our money, whether we spent it on ourselves or invested in the eternal kingdom. 
It will matter what we did with our bodies, what our eyes saw, our hands touched, and our mouths spoke. What we did for a two-year-old will matter, the way we made time for her and got down on her level. What we said about someone else's performance will matter, the sarcastic comment or the word of genuine praise. The proud boast and the selfless sacrifice will matter. The household task and the homework assignment will matter. The cup of water, the tear of compassion, the word of testimony, all of it will matter. Because there's a judgment. Fear God and keep His commandments. Why? There is a judgment. Here's how we'll close this. Use your imagination. It's a dramatic passage. I'm sure you've heard it so many times you could never number them. But when Christ was crucified... Uh, and all the drama that led up to it, the betray in the middle of the night, the trials, and then escorted up the hill, carrying his cross, then Simon carrying it the rest of the way. There's a crowd there. There's the, the religious rulers who instigated the whole thing, back and forth with Pilate, all those things. Some of the most intriguing to me is the little conversation that happens between Jesus and the two thieves that are on either side of him. They're called thieves or robbers in the King James Version. It might have been for some form of an insurrection and people were killed in the process. We're not given but so much background. And interestingly enough, when the one says to Jesus sarcastically, if you're all that you say you are, why don't you save yourself and us too I'm about tired of all this to which it's not Jesus that responds to him but the one on the other side and what does he say do you not fear God there's a reason why we're hanging here and it's our punishment that we deserve but this man has done nothing wrong now for him to say that uh, I, I, I can't fathom him just saying that based off of other things that he's heard. Because if you know anything about crucifixion, breathing is the hard part. You suffocate. That's how you die. It's very painful to push up to get enough breath in order to breathe, much less communicate to other people. They didn't talk much. So to dig up enough energy to say, don't you fear God, we're guilty, this man is innocent. This is speculation, of course, but I would not be surprised at all if he hadn't been to some of his teaching. Half the, the area had done such things. Maybe he was there in Luke 12 where Jesus is talking about the judgment, where he's saying uh, all sorts of things about a judge and how not to worry about those that can kill the body but who, singular, can throw you into hell once that body has expired? Death's one thing. Spiritual eternal death, separation from God forever, is, is another. So at what point in your life had you heard a man speak on such things? Would all that come back and really have meaning? I don't know, when you're hanging on a cross, having been crucified? Time's up. You're going to die. And after that, what happens? The judgment. He knows he meets the judge that day. 
Now the other one, who knows? But I think this one knows better. And with the rest of his breath, he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now last week, what did we talk about? What were we supposed to do? Enjoy the days of your youth and remember your creator in the days of your youth. Now, how many of us would vote that this guy did or didn't remember his creator in the days of his youth? Well, he is hanging on a cross as a condemned criminal, right? So, probably not. But having demonstrated fear of God, God remembers him that day. What does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. You will be remembered. Remember is a, a lame word for such a thing. That man is the one, I think, out of all of heaven that I want to talk to because he's the one that just squeaked on through, right? <laughs> when he got to the gates, this Alistair Begg talks about this. What, what, what does he say that, that, that would happen? You know, uh, so what are you doing here? I don't know. I have no idea. Well, surely you have an idea. Can you explain to us what justification by faith is? Did, did you learn that in catechism? So I don't even know what you're talking about. Maybe they call for supervisors. But at the end of the day, and this is the way Alistair Begg put it, he says, I don't know the answer to your questions. All I know is the man on the middle cross said I could come. And if he says you can come, you can come. He's the one that holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He's the one who's tasted death on your behalf. He's the one you don't forget in your youth. He's the one who will judge you when this under the sun is over. But because of him, and if you belong to him, and by faith that judgment passes on, he paid for it. Judgment's over. All you do is translate from under the sun to over the sun, or should we say back to the garden before all the sin ever happened. It's a wonderful story. Almost too good to be true. Everything matters. But one thing matters more than anything. And that is what you've done with Jesus, the Son of God. That's why John wrote his gospel. So that you may believe. That's your business. I hope you've chosen wisely. To put your whole eternal security on his back. Distrust yourself, trust him fully. Take faith to do it. We're going to learn on Wednesday night that faith itself is a gift. But with that said, let us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this another Sunday in your word and the conclusion to a book. Not what we expected. There's always a lot of attention around the end of a book or the end of a movie, the end of a series. Lord, we thank you for the end that everything matters. And because it matters so much, your son paid for all our sins so that we could have the righteousness that affords him intimate union with you. We thank you for the grace we have through Jesus. We thank you for Ecclesiastes and the, the operation it's done on our heart and on our brains. Lord, may we remember these, these pieces of wisdom. May they prompt us like goads. May they stay securely fixed like nails. 
And Lord, may they be the encouragement that we need to live well and die well, fearing you and obeying your commandments. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.